0: I put on a name tag and a tie, and I ride my bike to people's houses, and I pound on their door and interrupt their life. And most of you don't get that because we don't have a Mormon church in town. But if you grew up around a Mormon church, they were always a fun conversation to have when they came to your house. What another just means is that I'm one of the pastors here, but I don't collect a paycheck, nor do I want to collect a paycheck. Uh, And I get the honor of being able to speak as a fellow church leader uh, with you this morning. If you do not have a Bible with you, and you want one, and I would suggest that you take one, because we're going to look at it a lot this morning, raise your hand, and one of our fabulous and attractive ushers will put a Bible in that hand. If you don't have a Bible and you like that one, keep it. If you like that one better than your current one, that might be acceptable to keep as well. That's fine, too. I I don't care. Stealing a Bible, that's a fantastic thing. It's an interesting bit of irony, but... uh, Hey, before I jump into the message this morning, uh, one thing I want to let you know, one quick announcement. Uh, This is the time of year where uh, business people are receiving their Christmas bonuses. You know who doesn't receive a Christmas bonus? Your pastor's. Your pastors don't get a Christmas bonus, and so one of the traditions that we have taken upon ourselves as a church is to try to bless our pastors during this time of year, and we will give them a staff gift. Uh, If you would like to contribute to that gift, that gift, by the way, in case you are picking up what I'm putting down, we're going to give them more money. Okay. In order to do that, we need some more money, and so what we would like you to do, if you'd like to take part in that, is if you're like a check writer, write in the memo, staff gift, if you'd like to contribute to that. Uh, if, if you do the online thing, you could probably designate it online. If you are real old school and you miss uh, the opportunity because you don't have enough valet parking here, you can do the like 20 in the hand and the handshake or what, whatever it is that you want to do, but everybody will think that you look cheesy. Just warning, Okay. Um, I get to talk about some pretty good news this morning. God is with us. And I don't know if you recognize how significant that is, but God is with us, Emmanuel. That's what we talked about last week. We're going to talk about Uh, or or continue a series that we started here where Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. Let me read you something real quick. the, The 1689 London Baptist Confession stated Christ and Christ alone is fitted to be mediator between God and man. He is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. This morning, I get the opportunity to talk to you about Jesus as prophet. That's where we're going to go. Before we go there, I think it's fitting that we pray together. Can we do that? Okay, good. You guys are very responsive. This is going to go well. <laughs> Let's pray. God, we approach you recognizing that this time is completely useless if you are not in it. That the words that I have prepared will do nothing if your spirit does not enable them. And that the, the congregation here will not be able to even receive this message if you do not till the soil of their heart this morning. We beg that you would help us to accomplish these things, that you would be honored with this time. Amen. So, Jesus as prophet. Here's what we're going to talk about this morning. What does it mean for Jesus to be our prophet, and what does that mean for us? Now, I'm the type of person that when I see a word like prophet— My goal isn't to necessarily come to that word with what I think that word means, but instead try to go to some original source material and figure out what does it actually mean in action? What does that mean as we seek out for somebody to be called a prophet? So what that means is that we're going to be looking through a lot of the Bible today. If you hate turning pages of the Bible, I apologize ahead of time. You can get a full refund at the door. For the rest of you, warm up your fingers And maybe stick one in the table of contents. If you don't exactly know where those books are, no one will judge you for using the table of contents. We're going to look at some obscure books this morning, okay? So don't be afraid to use that table of contents if you need to. But we're going to be flipping around a lot because my goal is not just to talk a million miles an hour, but to try to show you in Scripture what it actually means for somebody to be a prophet and how that might be significant for you and I today, okay? So the first thing that I think we got to do is we got to take a look at what an Old Testament prophet is. Take a picture of an Old Testament prophet. To do that, we got to look at some of the messages that Old Testament prophets were known for giving. Probably the one that we're most familiar with, if you go to actually study Old Testament prophets, are messages of judgment. Let's take a look of a couple of these. Go over to Jeremiah chapter 1. <coughs> Jeremiah chapter 1. Once you're there, we're going to start reading in verse 16. This is God talking to Jeremiah about what the plan is here. I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They've made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. But you, God talking to Jeremiah, but you, dress yourself for work. Arise, say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. I behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord to deliver you. Jeremiah had the unenviable task of bringing the message of judgment to the people of Israel, and God even gave him some really bad news from the get-go. Hey, almost fell. Hey, they're gonna fight. I'm gonna make it look intentional. (laughs) They're gonna fight against what you have to say. These plants will kill me. They're gonna fight against what you have to say. So plan on it. I've got a message that I've got to tell them that they've been messing up. You see, here's the thing. I don't know how much you know about the Old Testament people, but I'm going to be punctuating this message with Old Testament history because it will make the most sense to you to try to understand Jesus' prophet if you get that information. Remember that when God assembled the people of Israel and took them out of their slavery in Egypt and made them his own people, they had a long period of time where they were at the foot of Mount Sinai. What was going on at the top of Mount Sinai? A giant storm to end all storms seemed to be happening up there. And everybody that saw it was afraid and said to Moses, their leader at the time, Moses, we don't want any of that. We don't want a piece of that action. You go up there, find out what it is that God wants and tell us because that's going to kill us and we don't want anything to do with it. Moses said, okay, and he goes up there, and he gets God's information for the people and brings it down, which essentially said this, if you will do these things, I will protect you as a people, I will cause you to be successful, you will be my people, I will be your God, and everything will be hunky-dory-dory, right? Here's the problem. Did the Israelites keep up their end of the deal? No, And Jeremiah was one of the people through whom God had to provide that message to the people. Hey, you're messing up. This isn't working very well. Let's take a look. You can look at Jeremiah 2, 1 through 7 later. Let's go over to Isaiah 1. Isaiah, another one of God's mouthpieces. Isaiah 1, we'll start and we'll read verse 4 and then we'll jump down to verses 7 and 8. God speaking through Isaiah. Ah, Sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So jump down to verse 7. That's going to show us what's going to happen as a result. So your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. This message from God through his mouthpieces was telling them, you're not doing it correctly. And as a result, bad stuff is coming. Sure enough, invaders came through and decimated Israel, enslaving the majority of them, taking them away from their homeland, and they were slaves once again because they hadn't kept up their end of the covenant. Messages of judgment we're typically familiar with, but prophets gave other messages as well, like messages of restoration. You're in Isaiah, go over to chapter 45. I apologize for the paper cuts that are inevitably starting. It's good. Callous your fingers if there's going to be more turning. In Isaiah 45, bear in mind, friends, when we're going to start reading in verse 1 and then go over to verses 4 and 5, God is saying this through Isaiah 200 years before it ends up happening. Verse 45, Thus the Lord to his anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that the gates may not be closed. Jump down to verses 4 and 5. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I will call you, Cyrus, by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. You see, what happened through Cyrus, like I said, this message was given through Isaiah 200 years before it happened. Those, the people had been enslaved for their failure to uphold the covenant, but it was Cyrus, the Persian king, that allowed them to actually go back to their land and to start rebuilding the kingdom of Israel as it was before its decimation. God was giving them messages of restoration. But there was another message that needed to be provided as well. Before we turn over to that passage, let me tell you what happened. So Cyrus allows the people of Israel to go back. And under Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuild the wall. They rebuild the temple. Things are looking like Israel will be able to go back to the glory that it once was. But there was a problem. See, when they originally had built the temple, the the place where they would worship, the one true God, at its consecration day, something significant happened. As they, were praying, as they were praying over the temple, praying to God, addressing him, God came in his presence, filled the temple with smoke, And cloud, similar to what they saw on Sinai, the people were getting used to seeing God's presence represented in this stormy darkness that shows up with power and greatness. And when they consecrated the first temple, God showed up that way. They knew that that was the place where they would be able to interact with the living God. Under Ezra and Nehemiah, when they all went back after Cyrus said, sure, fine, go back, that's fine, go back. They go back. They rebuild the temple. Something was notoriously absent. The cloud didn't show up. It's kind of a confusing moment for everybody. Seemed like everything was going in a good direction. But God didn't show up. Another message needed to be provided to them. (sighs) One of the last messages of the Old Testament is found in the Italian prophet Malachi. Turn to his book. <laughs> what? Oh, Just in case you're not familiar with Bible stuff, it's actually pronounced Malachi in case you don't want to look stupid in front of your like, super churchy friends. It's Malachi. But it's the stupid churchy friends like me that will laugh when you call it Malachi. So it's a, it's a trade-off. Malachi says this in, verse, in chapter 3. Verse 1, Behold, which is just Old Testament talk for, hey, check this out. I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his, what? Temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of Hosts. I want you to look that in just this one verse, two messengers are discussed. In the first part of 3.1, we see this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Jump down, since you're in Malachi, jump down to the end of chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 5, you'll read this. Chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Interesting language that's used here. It struck me, one of the things I've been doing or what I've been doing over the last few weeks as I kind of prepare my heart for the Christmas season is during my personal time with God, I've been going through a really broad sweeping history of the arrival of Jesus. And one of the things that I that I tripped across was reading the end of this passage in Malachi and then reading the communication between John the Baptist's father and the angel that came and told him about the child that was coming. And you know what words the angel said? He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Talking of John the Baptist. And sure enough... In, in Luke 1.17, we realize that this messenger that came before the Lord was indeed John the Baptist. But back to Malachi 3.1, that was not the only messenger that was discussed. There was a second one. Malachi one, second half of the verse. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This second messenger was to bring about the day of the Lord. This second messenger was going to be the presence of God that didn't show up when that temple was built. Now, does this give us specifically the information that we need at this point? No, but it certainly starts to give the people of Israel an indication that there's something special coming. 400 years elapses and Jesus is born why we are celebrating this Advent season. So I think hopefully by these messages, what you're starting to get is a clearer picture of what a prophet was to the Old Testament people. Let's make sure that we're picking up the right ideas here. Number one, what is a prophet? Well, the first thing that we are probably starting to to get into our minds here, and if you're taking notes and you want to write down a reference, this is a good one to write down, 1 Samuel 9.9. Prophets were called seers. Why? Because they saw stuff. See the ingenuity there? That's good stuff, right? Seers. Because they saw stuff. What kinds of stuff did they see? They could see spiritually speaking. God gave them specific insight, sometimes about what was going on right now, sometimes about something that was about to happen, but sometimes about something that was going to happen way off into the future. This is, a, this is a moment when I want to kind of put our message on time out and just share a concept with you that I found to be really helpful. See, when I first was learning about prophets, when I was starting to kind of really engage with all of this Bible stuff, I always thought that prophecy was always just something about telling the future, right? And prophets, prophets of God, did talk about the future, but they talked about varying stages of the future, and if you leave here today and start reading some of the prophecies that are in the Old Testament, you might find yourself a little bit confused because there's stuff that's intermingled. Let me give you an image to help you work your way through that, that I basically stole from a book that we are selling in our bookstore. I make no money from this book, but it's called How to Read the Bible from What for All It's Worth. And it's, bar none, the best book that I have ever read about Uh, how to study the Bible. It's really accessible book. And in the chapter about how to read prophecy, it talks about this idea that when a prophet was describing the message of the Lord to people, you and I look at that message and we can see that there might be something in the future, but then there might be something in the extended future. And when we look at it from the side, we can see that these are two separate things. But the way in which the prophets typically would write would be more like this, where they weren't looking at it from the side, they were looking at it straight on. So they, in their writings, would talk both about the nearby future and also talk about the extended future. If you look at these two pictures side by side, you can hopefully start to get a tool for your toolbox in terms of reading the prophetic books that we have a tendency to look on the left-hand side and be able to separate Take Isaiah's message, for instance. Isaiah talked about Cyrus. That's something that has happened in the past. But Isaiah also talked about stuff that has yet to happen. We can look at it from the side perspective and see that there's more, even though Isaiah will talk about them with that image or in a way that's kind of more uh, better described as that image on the right-hand side. That's kind of how the future discussion dis, uh, the future discussion came from prophets. And what you're probably starting to pick up is that the prophets were pretty special. They were seers that were specifically chosen for a task. Go over to Jeremiah chapter 1 again. In Jeremiah chapter 1, we come across this in verse 5. Start in verse 4, actually. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I made you special. I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Prophets had a very special task before the people of God because they had special things that they were able to see from God. So as a result, they ended up being, our third point here, God's mouthpiece. God, as God's mouthpiece, they would tell the people the things that they needed to hear, not necessarily what they wanted to hear, but what they needed to hear. And a lot of the times that contained that message of judgment that we discussed and the future message of restoration or the message of the coming day. But typically, it, the bread and butter of a prophet, so to speak, was calling people to repentance. And as a result, prophets were not super popular guys. What did did Jesus say that the people of Israel had a tendency to do with prophets? To kill them. Well done. Well done. That way, we, see, you guys are so much better than the first service. We had to like look up a passage and I had to prove it. You guys already know. Bible scholars, saving time. <laughs> Jesus cries out, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets. Jesus characterized the crown city of the people of Israel as a place where prophets were slain. Think about it. It's not difficult to see why this occurred, right? You're living your life. Do, 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 do. Everything's fine. Life's good. Growing some crops, raising some animals, having like 15 kids, all that kind of stuff that you're doing in first century, right? And then this guy, dressed in weird animal hair, shows up and starts running around your city, getting in people's faces going, you're doing it wrong. Change. Um... I'm just growing crops and like, raising my family here. No, you're doing it wrong. Bad stuff's going to happen as a result. How many times would you have to hear somebody say that before it would get really annoying? Right? Just even, I'm not even going to do it because I've already done it twice and I know I hurt your ears the second time I did it. But if you kept hearing that message, especially with that weird nasal voice that I was just, you're doing it wrong. If you heard that over and over and over and over again, Exactly. Somebody please pull the hammer back on my pistol. We need to solve this problem, right? And that's what the people of Israel would typically do because nobody likes to be told, hey, you're doing it wrong. You need to to change your path a little bit. We don't like that, right? That makes me feel uncomfortable. Don't judge me. You don't know me, right? We don't like that. And as a result, the people of Israel rarely would receive the message of God to them. However, it wasn't always a negative message. Remember, the prophets also had a job to pronounce forgiveness and pardon. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. In verse 1, we read this. I love hearing the sound of all the pages. It's so good. Ain't no Kindles here. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly. To whom? Oh, my gosh. God doesn't make any sense. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets. Elsewhere, he's saying comfort and speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Yes, the prophets had the responsibility of telling people, you're doing it wrong, you need to change. But the goal was always for the sake of restoring the people of God back to their God. It was to draw them back in. It wasn't to stand and point and judge It was to be real about how broken the people of Israel were and to tell them that only after you will deal with that brokenness can you be restored to your God. I think we probably have an idea now of what a prophet is. So as a result, let's ask, then how did Jesus function as a prophet? Number one, Jesus was identified as a prophet by people. If you are taking notes and you want to write down a reference for this one, it would be Matthew twenty-one eleven. That would be a place where you could go and take a look and see that Jesus was referred to as a prophet. But I want you to see how Jesus referred to himself. Go over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. So now we're going to head into the New Testament to try to pick up some of Jesus' words directly from him. <coughs> In Luke chapter 4, we get a really interesting story. And it's really interesting primarily because it's a prophet talking about a prophet using prophecy to talk about the fulfillment of the prophecy occurring. Did you get it? If you didn't, that's okay, we'll read it, all right? (laughs) We're going to read a big chunk here. We're going to read Luke 4, starting in verse 16. And he came, this is talking about Jesus, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So bear in mind, this is Jesus going back to his hometown. This is like a guy who grew up in Truckee and then went to San Diego for a little while and came back to Truckee with a beard and giant muscles and started screaming at you every day about how you need to return to the Lord your God. This was Jesus' story. Some of you are not understanding at all what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm describing our senior pastor, Jesse, uh, because I have to make fun of him every time I speak. Which is why I don't speak very often. (laughs) So Jesus goes back to his hometown, Nazareth, where he's been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, here we go, prophet, getting the prophet stuff, was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the room sounded like this. Everyone going, is going to happen. This guy's a freak. But everywhere he goes, magical things are happening. What's he going to say? And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I don't know if they got it. Knowing my brain, I would have heard that and been like, what? What? I don't. Wait, can you say that part again? Right? Like that's just how I, many of you in this room are smarter than me, and you would probably be like, yes, of course, yes. But I, I would struggle with that, right? Maybe you would too. But they knew that something special was happening. Verse 22, all spoke well of him. They marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's kid? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Remember, Jesus had been doing Fantastic miracles in other places. People were following him around, not necessarily because they believed him, but because it was a circus freak show everywhere he went. People that had debilitating diseases were being healed. People that had been completely enemies of God were now turning and repenting and following after him. People were changing everywhere Jesus went. And Jesus is recognizing that they're going to want him to do the same thing in his hometown. What's he say? Verse 24. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus refers to himself in this moment as a prophet. He identifies with the experience of the prophets that came before him, that whenever they came with the message of the Lord, more often they were rejected than they were accepted. And Jesus knew that most likely that was going to happen that people were going to reject him, even as they surrounded him. But there's something more, something that had gone on for even a longer time than this moment. Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecy of a great prophet. Go all the way back to Deuteronomy 18. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. near the front. And bear in mind what's going on in the time of Deuteronomy. What's happening is that Moses, who had been leading the people of God for a significant period of time, was about to die. And he was trying to get the people of God ready for the fact that he wouldn't be there to lead them anymore. Look at what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, chapter, I'm I'm sorry, chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God Will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. This passage, don't miss the fact that it probably stung a little bit to hear it. Think about it. Think of what Moses is implying here that I have been a prophet to you. I have given you God's message but it's not really going to be me that you're listening to. It's going to be the prophet who is raised from among us, from your brothers and it's to him that you're actually going to listen. He's going to be the one that's going to start changing things finally. This message came a significant period of time before Jesus showed up. What he was stating is that it would be Jesus, if you're taking notes, write down Mark 1, It would be Jesus coming on the scene similar to the other prophets, telling the people their need to repent and believe on him. But Jesus as a prophet was something even more significant than any other prophet that had ever come before him. The Heidelberg Catechism calls, him, calls Jesus our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. I want you to see this. Turn over to the book of Hebrews. It's in the New Testament. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 1. I love the book of Hebrews. It's probably one of my favorite books, which you're really not allowed to have. Um, But I don't care because no one's paying me, so you can't take my money away for me saying it. I love the book of Hebrews primarily because it's so dang Jewish. And I am so dang not Jewish. And... A lot of the times when I try to understand Jesus, I do so with this like Anglo-Saxon, European, super white, blue-eyed Jesus. And I completely miss the fact that Jesus was very, very Jewish. And for me to try to understand Jesus, I've got to understand the Judaism into which Jesus was speaking and acting. And the author of Hebrews got it. The author of Hebrews spends so much time Embracing the Jewishness of Jesus, but showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism. And he starts with a zinger. Ready for it? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by whom? By the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by what? His Son. We've switched from the prophets to the Son in terms of who is it that's providing God's message. Here's why. He appointed him heir of all things through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down. Stop there again. That's the second time we've heard the whole sit down talk, right? After he read the scroll of Isaiah and said, hey, Isaiah was talking about me. Jesus sat down. Why? Because when Jesus drops the mic, He wants to make a point. There's nothing left that I have to tell you. I am that big of a deal. I am the one who's providing you the message of God. After providing purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The prophets first bore the message of God to the people. But now it comes through the Son. It comes through Jesus. If that was not strong enough for you, let's look at Matthew chapter 17. For those of you whose fingers are cramping, there is hope. We are getting close to the end. Matthew chapter 17. This is a fun passage. I wrote up there that 17.5 is our most important verse just to kind of s- spill the beans, but we're going to start in, chap- in uh, verse 1. Matthew 17, starting in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Man, mountains. Those are dangerous places when you're around God, right? Mount Sinai, this Mount of Transfiguration, watch out, special things happen on mountains. And he was transfigured, he was changed before them. And his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, "Um, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you want, I'll make three tenths. I love this response. Isn't this awesome? This is one of the reasons that I have come to believe that what I find in scripture is true. Because if I wanted to make up a story about myself, I probably wouldn't say, I'm here in this giant significant moment when Jesus was transfigured and two dead guys showed up and they're talking to Jesus and my brilliant idea was to make tents. <laughs> I just cannot, I, I, how, in, how fun would it be for the disciples? to be like, Hey, remember when you were out there? and then that stuff happened, and you were like, hey, let's make some tents. (laughs) He doesn't know what to do. Why? Because what is happening right here is beyond words. It's beyond anybody's expectation of what would occur. One for Moses, one for Elijah. Special tents. (laughs) He was still speaking. I love this. God's like, Shut up, Peter. (laughs) He was still speaking. When behold, a bright cloud. Oh no, mountains and clouds. We know what happens when mountains and clouds are happening. A bright cloud overshadowed uh, overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And everybody read the next three words to make sure that it was abundantly clear what God wanted us to do with Jesus. That's when you talk. Listen Listen to him. Sorry, I made that a little bit ambiguous. That was my bad. Listen to him. When they first consecrated the temple, what showed up at the temple? A cloud when they were at Sinai trying to understand what was going on in terms of understanding what did they see at the top of the mountain a cloud they were led by this this cloud where God was always speaking through this presence of this stormy moment and in this stormy moment once again on a mountain God speaks to them and says this is my son it would probably be pretty wise of you at this point to pay attention if he gives any instructions. Instruction is, listen to him. Can you think of all the other things that you might say if you were explaining what was going on with Jesus at that time? Hey guys, he's going to be pretty significant. He's going to die for your sins. going to be the ultimate sacrifice. Hey, those, th- those miracles he's been doing, he's been doing by the power of God. Hey, here's some more explanation. Listen to him. It's so simple. And yet, it becomes a struggle for us every day, doesn't it? This is how Jesus is the prophet for us. Jesus both claimed within himself and with his own words to be the mouthpiece of God. And God himself showed up on this Mount of Transfiguration and said, listen to Jesus. This is my son, the writer of Hebrews saying, listen to the son. He's the one that's telling us what we need to know about God. So do I really need to ask this question for the sake of clarification and making sure that we are abundantly clear? Yes. So what's the response? What do we do with this, right? I have now made you turn to so many biblical passages, you've essentially earned a minor in Old Testament studies. Congratulations, you are biblical scholars, whether you wanted to be or not. However, all of us know people that know all kinds of information, and yet their lives are completely useless to other people. Because knowing a bunch of stuff doesn't always change everything. If we know all this information, we still need to ask ourselves the question, so what? What's the response to Jesus as our prophet? This first one's pretty clear. We must listen, right? In case you doubt that one, refer back to Matthew 17, okay? And when you forget that one, go back to Matthew 17 again. Listen to him. But let's unpack that listening with a couple other points. And we're going to unpack that by looking at Jesus' words themselves. Go over to Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells us a little bit more about listening to him. And he starts with kind of a stinging question. Why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I tell you to do? We could stop there, right? Right. All the accusations that you've ever heard about Christianity being hypocritical or why it can't be followed or why somebody was hurt by a Christian here or there, we all make mistakes and we all understand that, but all of us also need to remember that a lot of the times it's just because we don't listen and we don't do what it is that he tells us to do. But good news. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose and the stream broke against that house, it could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears but does not do them is like a man who built the house on the ground without any foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Notice in that comparison, it is a guarantee for both of those individuals that the stream rose and attacked their house. Friends, it is a guarantee, just in case you hadn't figured it out, tough stuff is going to happen in your life. If you raise kids, make sure you tell them, I'm sure you have, when they've yelled to you, that's not fair. Chances are, you've responded by saying, life's not fair. Why? Because you know that that's accurate. It's not fair. That's not how things are supposed to work. Things are broken. It's not supposed to be like this. That's why the the future coming of Jesus brings us such hope and victory because they won't always be like this. Things are going to change. But the difficult stuff is going to happen right now. And what will make the difference of whether or not you crumble is what? Doing what he tells you to do. Not just hearing, but doing what he tells you to do. Friends, I can guarantee you something unfair is going to happen when you go out there. How are you going to respond? If you do what it is that he tells you to do, you'll be okay. Doesn't mean it's going to be perfect, doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable. Doesn't even mean that it's going to have a hallmark Christmas movie ending. But it's going to be okay. If you don't, well, enjoy the stream. Hope you can swim. Because that's what he says. We must put what we hear from Jesus into practice. And what does that look like? We have to obey. Go to John 14. Last passage for those of you with bleeding fingertips. John 14. We have to listen. We have to put it into practice. And we have to obey. Here's what Jesus says. John 14, verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him, Emmanuel, God with us. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Warning, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Remember over in, uh, make a note that earlier in John 14, Thomas says, how is it that we're supposed to go after you? How do we know the way? And Jesus goes, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was not a pluralist. Jesus did not think that there were many ways to God the Father. Jesus recognized that the words that he said were the very words of God. But the good news was that if you actually listened to them, put them into practice and obey, he would come and dwell within you. God with us, Emmanuel. As the band's coming up, I want to close with this. I know that this this morning's message was not very Christmassy. Right? I mean, I darn near killed myself tripping over some poinsettias. That's like the opposite of Christmas. Right? There was no mention of a manger. And aside from the most wonderful time of the year fiasco that occurred towards the beginning, we didn't really talk too much about Christmas. And I was looking for a way to try to understand Jesus as a prophet, but try to understand it in some Christmassy terms. Let me read you this. When Christ was born, the wise came from far away to provide him gifts. Gifts that were fit for royalty. If you consulted with those wise kings today and asked them, what's the perfect gift for this Christmas season? I can guarantee that they would tell you this. Listen to your Lord. Practice the words of your prophet. Obey the commands of your king. Give these gifts to Jesus, your prophet, and I can guarantee that it will make your Christmas just a little bit more merry. Let's respond back to our God. Would you all stand?